Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things down under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we break down the Russia-Ukraine conflict, what's happened, why it's happening, and what to expect next. Hello, everyone. My name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa de Grazia. And welcome back to your fortnightly episode of Australia Explained. Yes, welcome. I'm calling in from Ugaraland today, which is many, many nations away from Utan. Yes, I'm in Mawandri as per usual. I'm in a different house, but I'm still in Mawandri land um, <laughs> of the Kulin Nation. A little um, tidbit is that the Kulin Nation is made up of five language groups of the Rwang clan. Um, so we say Wurundjeri. We are one part of the Kulin Nation, in case you didn't know. Oh, I missed and loved your tidbits. Yes, yes, I do usually inform my friends on social media or Snapchat. They might get a tidbit of me spitting some historical fact. Um, (laughs) But just the importance of knowing what country you're on and and which clan you're residing with. So this episode is heavily requested. It's highly relevant. Um, But also the dust has settled in most mainstream media outlets in Australia Obviously, when the Russia-Ukraine conflict came or sort of exploded a few weeks ago, it was everywhere. It was plastered on every news side, every TV channel. Um, But we've had different things to discuss since then, you know, for example, the floods. Um, And it's just a reminder that the news cycle changes very quickly, but that doesn't mean that we can forget and move on just as quickly, Um, especially in the age of social media activism where we're sharing posts one day that are then out of public thought the next. So just be weary of the things that have popped into your news feeds over the past two weeks. They are still ongoing issues and they still deserve our attention. Yeah, that's a bit of a trend that we have that we kind of like to wait to see when the dust has settled in the media, see what's been happening, see what's been said, and then we feel like we can come at it from a really factual, informative perspective rather than, you know, this chaos that happens in the media when conflict or a big event first breaks out. So, yeah, we're going to be covering Australia's role in the conflict. We'll talk a little bit about the conflict itself, but we're really going to focus on how Australia is affected, how we're involved, and what we can see for Australia's future in terms of this um, conflict. And we've recorded this just a mere day before we've released it, but this is such a rapidly changing event that I would not be surprised if we release this and something drastically changes again. (laughs) Oh, there seems to be a new story every day. Exactly. So let's use this as a base knowledge um, and we're going to have a bunch of links for further places you can go for more information too. So let's get to the most basic basic question of all. How did this conflict begin? Yes. Yeah, so to begin, I suggest if you don't know where Ukraine is and where Russia is, look at a map, get a gist of things, because it's going to make it make a lot more sense. I think in Australia, because we have no borders with any other country, we're really prone to forgetting the importance of a physical land border and how that can influence a country's sense of safety. Like, picture if we had a land border with North Korea and, you know, Kim Jong-un could just drive over into New South Wales. I think (laughs) our 
attitude to protecting our country militarily and diplomatically would probably be a little different. So take a look at a map if you're not sure where it is. Try to picture that feeling of insecurity and maybe even a feeling of closeness um, having a land border with another country. That's the frame we're beginning with. My students asked me about it in, in one of my history lessons. They were like, Miss, what's happening in Russia, Ukraine? We see it all over the news. And I basically just said land. And they looked at me like, land? Really? Yes, Is land. That it? Um, but land equals power and land equals influence. So um, they might be fighting over a physical land border, but symbolically in, and in, the ter- in terms of global politics, it means a lot more than that. So let's bring you guys through a brief timeline. We're not going to focus too much on the reasons behind this conflict, but it's important to, to map out the past few decades. So as per usual, we're venturing back into my favourite historical era to discuss, which is the Cold War, basically from the end of World War One to 1991. And Ukraine and Russia used to be united in a country called the Soviet Union or um, the United Soviet States of Russia, the USSR, you may be familiar with. And this existed up until 1991 when the Soviet Union fell and all the little countries and ethnic groups within the Soviet Union um, were granted independence to form their own nation states. So countries like Ukraine, Slovenia, Slovakia, all those Balkan states, etc., they all split up into their individual countries. Um, so following 1991, with the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia made a security agreement with the Ukraine, basically saying, even though we've split up into different countries, we're still friends, we're still going to protect each other, and we're pretty much allies at this point in time. So everything was all rosy between Ukraine and Russia, our friendly neighbours, until democracy protests in Ukraine took down their pro-Russian president. This is where it starts to get a little bit rocky because obviously here the relations and the friendship between Ukraine and Russia began to deteriorate. Then in 2014, Russia invaded a little part of Ukraine on the eastern border called Crimea and annexed this area, meaning they basically took ownership of it illegally in a way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and they backed rebel movements in other parts of the country who were advocate, advocating for separation from Ukraine. And I just want to note that Ukraine is a very ethnically diverse country. There are lots of different language groups throughout the country, particular, particularly as we edge closer to the Russian border. So it's very normal in this situation for certain groups of Ukraine to feel more aligned with Russian culture because they might be. Mm. And on your point, yeah, Ukraine is a huge country as well, especially considering the usual size of European countries, which are relatively yeah. small. Um, Ukraine's one of the larger countries in Europe. And over the, over history, it's been connected with Russia, connected with other parts of Europe, and it's got really long standing ties. Um, different, different groups within it have long standing ties to Russia or other nations. Yeah. But back to the modern era, since Russia invaded Crimea and all of this drama has occurred, stuff's been bubbling up. It's been, it's been going a bit crazy. <laughs> and this is not a new development, um, especially with Vladimir Putin, who has been quoted as early as 2005 
um, saying that the fall of the Soviet Union was a disaster politically, economically and geographically. Um, so clearly he wants the Soviet Union back or some form of it in that quote. Um, he's also been quoted saying that he believes Russians and Ukrainians are alike or brothers in a way and who they should just be one big family. Um, which is just not as peacefully as he states, but, you know, very peaceful language. <laughs> um, but the catalyst for this invasion is Ukraine's desire to join NATO. And you did your history bit. Time for my world politics bit, Tan. Go for it. <laughs> so NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it's a military alliance that's existed just after the Second World War. It's an alliance between North America and Europe. So it started with the US and Canada in North America, and France, Britain, and eight other European nations. Um, since 1949, when it was created, 18 other European countries have joined. So it's ballooned into this really strong military alliance with a bunch of really powerful countries. Thinking back to home, Australia's not a part of NATO, just because we are obviously not in the North Atlantic area. Um, but we do have really close ties with NATO. We've conducted a whole bunch of projects with them, um, especially military projects. So we're not a part of it, but we're very closely aligned to them. And we're allied with some countries within NATO as well, for example, yeah. the US. So NATO more recently invited Ukraine to join the treaty alliance. And, of course, Russia didn't particularly particularly like this because they are not a part of NATO. They are pretty much NATO's enemy and they're not a fan whatsoever of the US having some sort of influence in Europe as well. Russia has clearly stated that in order to stop this Ukrainian invasion, NATO would have to not only deny Ukraine's membership, but also pull back a bunch of troops from countries that are close to Russia. Mm-hmm. So NATO, given that it is this alliance between North America and Europe, one of their primary aims is to stop Russian influence. They don't want Russian power kind of coming into Europe, which is, you know, a threat to Europe, obviously, because it's their continent, and a threat to America because they just don't want Russia to be powerful. Yeah. In light of that, there's a bunch of underlying reasons behind this conflict. While Russia might say, oh, we're invading Ukraine because it's historically ours and it needs to be demilitarized, um, it's much more likely that Russia wants to cement its world influence. Essentially, while this conflict has erupted in Ukraine due to Russia's historical relationship with that country, it's really a war with Europe rather than just a war with Ukraine. Um, it's looking to prevent the European Union's expansion to Russian borders. So Russia sees it. If we've got Ukraine, that's a big old wedge between us and Europe. And that's really useful to them. What has Australia's response been to this conflict? Mm, so I wanted to start this off with SCOMA has said that Australia will not be sending troops to Ukraine. That should be really clear to all Aussies. Um, there's going to be no boots on the ground, not making the same mistakes we did with Afghanistan and Iraq. We're out, for sure. And a lot of countries have adopted this approach. A lot of countries have decided to stay out of this conflict physically, um, mm -hmm. They might be implementing some sanctions from afar, which we'll discuss later. Um, but I think this all links back to the fact that we are fighting in a different era now. We are fighting with nuclear warfare and there's, um, 
the idea of a mutually assured destruction if one country was to invade and attack with nuclear warfare. And what I mean with mutually assured destruction is that it is almost guaranteed that if someone sets off nuclear a nuclear bomb or nuclear weaponry, that the other country will retaliate with nuclear weaponry and would pretty much destroy a lot of the earth. So they do not want this to happen. We do not want this to happen. Politicians and, and heads of governments are aware of the consequences of, of the age in which we're fighting in, hence why they're taking a step back from physically involving themselves. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but I sort of agree and sort of disagree because I think mutually assured destruction, what you're saying, it's totally correct, but it's also been a concept for a while. It's not a new concept. It's been around since... Oh, no. Ever since the United States dropped the bomb on Japan in 1945. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mu- exactly. MAD, it's called, the acronym is MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. Yeah, and, I love that acronym. Um, <laughs> World War II comics were actually created with this idea in mind. So there has been reference to that Mutually Assured Destruction for decades and decades now. It's just that now we're at a point where almost every military in the world has access to this weaponry. It's not just the superpowers anymore. And we don't know the extent which other countries have developed um, or invested into nuclear warfare as well. So it's a lot more threatening nowadays than it was back in 1945. Mm-hmm. I also just think they don't have the cultural capital anymore to start wars in countries where they're not involved in, especially yeah. if Afghanistan and Iraq, like normal people, like the Australian public, are probably not too keen to enter a war into a country where they have no previous involvement. It's not going to get votes anymore. Um, yeah. which shows a big cultural shift as well. Yeah, and I think that just shows that our attitudes and also our approaches to warfare have changed over time. We're definitely not reverting back to world wars of the past. Yes, just economic anyway, world wars, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> we're on a tangent. What we're trying to say is that ScoMo has criticised Russia publicly, um, but he's actually not doing anything physically to involve Australia. Um, so basically we're, we're spitting a lot of words at Russia right now, calling them brutal, um, for their invasion because it does violate international law. As a result, we've landed on Russia's list of unfriendly countries, including a bunch of other European and developed countries. And being an unfriendly country just means that Russian companies that are dealing with us, um, will start to increase regulations or um, tariffs against us, kind of like an empty statement given that most countries have already banned interactions with Russia and limited their trade with Russia anyway. These economic bans are called sanctions. Most countries have adopted this approach to avoid fully inserting themselves into the conflict, and we'll speak on that in just a second. Mm, Continuing on the diplomacy thread, ScoMo has also made some calls to China to intervene, which is kind of ironic considering that China doesn't think too highly of us at the moment as well. (laughs) (laughs) We did an episode on this late last year. We'll include a link to it. Um, But China is an ally of Russia and has not joined any of the sanctions or embargoes against the country. Also, Ukraine's ambassador has practically begged Australia to expel Russian ambassadors. It's actually quite a sad video of him um, pleading to Scott Morrison. Uh, But Australia is refusing for good reason. They want to keep an open line of communication with the Russian government and to expel all the ambassadors from the country would essentially just shut that communication line off. Yeah, absolutely. 
The Australian government has cautioned everyday lay people from heading overseas to fight on either side of the conflict. It's actually illegal to do so um, if you're not part of an army that has been deployed to go to those countries. And technically, people that do that can be prosecuted in Australia. But Ukraine's embassy has stated it will help out anyone who decides to fly over there and assist with the conflict, which is a radical position to take to just, you know, catch a fly and join the war. Um, But technically there will be assistance from Ukraine if you do decide to do that. Yeah, quite radical from Ukraine as well to um, specifically go against the Australian law and say we will help people even though it's against the law. Um, But, yeah, that law exists so people don't go and fight um, in causes for terrorism or um, get themselves killed overseas and cause a bit of trouble for the Australian government. But, yeah, apparently 20 people have actually contacted the embassy wanting to fight, which is a lot but not a lot at the same time. It's still 20 individual people that thought it was a good idea. So we briefly mentioned sanctions before. Let's expand on this. Yes, and we mentioned that sanctions are the the favoured way of approaching this conflict. A sanction is when a country puts forward a policy that limits trade or financial interaction with another country. So they're quite common when the international community is trying to punish a country for doing something not so great. Um, For example, we currently have sanctions against North Korea and Iran, for example, because we don't necessarily agree with some of their actions um, or behaviours. Yeah, I think North Korea has the most sanctions in the world out of all the countries. They can't trade with, like, anyone. (laughs) Can't really (laughs) argue with that, to be honest. Yeah, so essentially they put all these limits on trade with Russia in an attempt to break their economy. And I don't mean slow down, I don't mean damage, I mean they are trying to break it. Um, they've frozen them out of the international banking system, stopped buying their exports, and absolutely paralysed Russian businesses and brands. And the desire to break their economy comes from they're trying to make the consequences for this invasion so large that Russia has no choice to pull out of Ukraine and regain that economic relationship with the world. Um, But this definitely does come at a cost to all the other countries in the world who may rely on Russian products, in particular, one very important product that many of us use every day. Yes, you may have heard a lot about petrol prices lately. You may have seen about petrol prices when you tried to fill up. Yes, often I use petrol prices as as an excuse of a conversation when you run out of things to say. (laughs) Often you're like, oh, what about petrol prices? You know, as a bit of a funny remark, but it turns out it's not so funny anymore when people are genuinely talking about petrol prices because it is dominating our landscape right now. So you may have noticed that petrol prices have absolutely skyrocketed. Um, We never thought we'd see petrol over $2, which is, you know, unfathomable in Australia. But we have recently, and it all links back to this conflict with Russia and Russia being a big oil country and, and exporter. So the European Union is aiming to reduce its dependency on Russian oil by around 80%, which may help with prices. Um, and the UK and the US have already banned Russian oil um, and looking for other sources and, and places to, to source that. 
So prices are expected to jump up to $2.50 a litre if they haven't already in some parts of the country. Um, and that's because Russia accounts for 13% of oil exports and 9% of gas exports worldwide, according to Rabobank. So as soon as something happens in Russia, um, it does begin to affect the rest of the global community. Mm, and that's a big way that sanctions against Russian products are affecting people worldwide, because we're saying we won't buy your petrol because you invaded Ukraine. And then the whole world is like, oh, no, we have no more petrol. <laughs> Yeah. And that kind of shows how sanctions work. You know, they come at a cost to everybody in the end. Um, and although the price jump is not as jarring as petrol, this conflict's also going to affect our food prices, which I found really interesting and horrible. Um, so Ukraine, surprisingly, actually accounts for 12% of global wheat trade, which, yeah, I found super surprising. I had no idea, um, which obviously can affect food shortages worldwide. Um, at the moment, our food industry is far greater impacted by the floods that have been absolutely ravaging most of the East Coast. Um, but food will be affected in many ways. So there's wheat imports from Ukraine, but also that fuel cost feeds directly into our supermarket prices because it costs more to run machinery, diesel costs more, fertilizer costs more, and that all contributes. Exactly, yeah, and that all contributes to what we pay at the checkout. Yeah, it's like an ongoing chain reaction that we never expected, but here we are. Um, The good news, though, is that our economy is quite strong at the moment, you know, entering post-COVID recovery, unemployment is low, um, and we are in a better position now than a lot of other countries, such as the US or the UK. Um, But we're still acknowledging that this conflict will have an impact on us economically, um, regardless of, of the state of our economy right now. Mm-hmm. To look at some positives, um, the Australian economy is actually likely to get more tax money, more government money in the budget because as prices rise generally for gas, coal and iron um, due to this trend of rising prices and everything happening with Russia, um, we will likely be able to charge higher prices for our minerals too and that will, yeah, gain more revenue in tax. And Josh Frydenberg um, was boasting about this. But I'll be interested to see how this translates to ordinary Australians because, yes, we're going to see higher prices in coal and gas and these sorts of things, but ordinary Australians don't generally own coal companies um, unless you guys know different Australians to me. <laughs> so I'll be curious to see if this fact that Josh Frydenberg was boasting about will impact um, normal Australians in a better way or is just going to impact the top 1% of Australians. That pretty much sums up our episode covering Australia's involvement with the conflict. Um, but before we finish, we wanted to touch on looking at this conflict sensibly and humanely because, of course, Real people are involved, real countries are involved, and it will have a massive effect on all of us. Yeah, so of course, um, what's happening in Ukraine is really, really horrible, but there's been this huge cultural distancing from Russia. Um, I saw this article about the Great Moscow Circus releasing statements saying, we're Australian-owned, we're not Russian-owned, but what we're going to talk about now, we're kind of encouraging people to look beyond the black and white here. 
Yeah, it's not as simple as it seems and it's not as one-sided as it seems. It's a very complex and developing situation. Um, and we do have to think about the people living in Russia currently and how their lives will be impacted. So at the moment, the value of the Russian ruble has absolutely plunged and Moscow's stock exchange has been closed for several days. And considering there are 144 million people who live in Russia, not every one of them will have the exact same thoughts about this war. We can guarantee you that many of them do not agree with the war in Ukraine, or at least do not care enough to be suffering the sanctions that are affecting their ability to live day to day. So try not to isolate Russian people as a whole. This is very much so a diplomatic issue. It's happening with heads of governments and Everyday citizens just find themselves in the middle of it. That's, I guess, the tragedy of war in that often civilians are the one most infected and the most affected and they're the ones that we empathise with the most. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. While we have the people of Ukraine in our thoughts, we have to think critically and keep the probable majority or a large sector of Russians in our thoughts too that are also suffering in a different way and do not support the conflict at all. Finishing off with our recommendations today, Vanessa, what have you got for us? So I've got a global conflict tracker, which keeps track of all the global conflicts around the world. Duh. Um, (laughs) And it's worth taking a look just to see um, what's happening worldwide, because this has absolutely saturated our media. Um, But it's easy to forget there are many conflicts going on at the moment, some arguably worse than what is happening in Ukraine um, in terms of scale. Um, For example, in Yemen, there's 24 million people who currently need assistance because of the conflict that is happening there. And I haven't heard anything about Yemen in the mainstream media for a very long time. So just encourage you to take a second, have a look what's really going on, have a critical think. Why am I seeing so much about Ukraine and not about Yemen? Yeah, and I can almost tell you that it always comes back to the Cold War and Western democracy. But hey, that's just me. <laughs> Indeed. I'm Tanya. I love to talk about the Cold War. Um, and my recommendation is something we like to do at Australia Explained. And we got misunderstood for it a couple of weeks ago. Um, yes, I we got some bad recommended- messages and I felt so bad. Yes, we recommended on our Instagram stories for people to go and look at Russian news outlets and what they're saying about the conflict. And we didn't mean this um, in a way where we are supporting or advocating for the perspective of these Russian news outlets. That's absolutely not what we were trying to do and we had to clarify ourselves there. But what we're trying to say is it's always interesting to see how people in Russia and how um, people speaking Russian will receive this news about the war in Ukraine, and that might help us understand how their thoughts are being informed and developed. So I would recommend checking out some English-translated Russian news websites. I've got a few here. There's TASS, um, RIA Novosti and Interfax, just to look at the headlines in Russia and how they might differ from what we're seeing in the Western world and what Ukrainians might be seeing. Um, also important to remember that Russian news is government-owned, so it is heavily biased, and they've recently just put in a bunch of sanctions about those who share information on social media and and consequences um, for that sort of behaviour. So 
It is really important when looking at these sources. It is state-owned. It will represent a state perspective. That's the point. That's why we want you to go and look at it to see what the state is trying to say to its people. Mm-hmm. It's like when you study the Holocaust in school, you look at all the Nazi sources, not to not to agree with them, but to study them and to understand the perspective. That's what we're. That's exactly. the type of inquiry we're encouraging here. Yeah, exactly. And in a few years' time, these these news reports will become primary sources, which historians look back on to try and figure out what the Russian perspective was on the crisis. So that's why we always encourage that. We'll leave a link in our show notes to all those sources and those recommendations for you to check out. That is it from us today. Thanks for tuning in every fortnight. We appreciate you opening your ears for us. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode because it was highly requested. And as per usual, let us know what you think. We're always interested to hear your thoughts and opinions. Indeed we are. And in the meantime, follow us for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content on Instagram at Australia Explained Pod. As Tanya said, all of the info, recommendations, etc., are all in the show notes for you to check out. We also just wanted to briefly mention before we head off, um, in the link of our Instagram page, um, there is the ability to donate to us. We are a little independent pod. Um, it is just us two running this off our back with Liam, who's volunteering for us up in New South Wales. Um, and so any contribution you make to the podcast would help us tremendously in terms of um, getting guests, um, paying for guests, outreach, marketing, social media, all those things you need to run a successful business like we're trying to do. So if that's something you want to support, head to the link in our bio on our Instagram page to help out. Mm-hmm. And we thank you in advance. Yes, we do thank you in advance with lovely smiles on our face. But otherwise, we will see you in two weeks' time. Bye, everyone. Bye.